Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, located at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Those eight words define, encapsulate, what we at Westminster have been about these past five years in throwing our doors open to these forums six to eight times in a given year. We come or we listen over the radio, driven by a given concern to hear people of earned reputation address that concern with knowledge, from experience, and with conviction. Today, we offer you in attendance and those of you in the listening audience a bonus, a special treat beyond the regularly scheduled program for the year. It was an extra edition of the local paper in each city and town that gave much of the population the news of Charles Lindbergh's successful crossing of the Atlantic May 20 and 21, 1927. So it is an extra forum that occasions the visit of Charles Lindbergh's daughter, Reeve Lindbergh-Brown, to this podium today. As we of Westminster talked informally a few weeks ago with those planning the, the Lindbergh Heritage Week, an action and event-packed week to say the least, it seemed to all concerned that Hearing from a member of the Lindbergh family at this midpoint in the celebration would be highly suitable, indeed highly appropriate, to a forum setting. Reeve Lindbergh-Brown lives in Vermont. She is the daughter of Anne Morrow Lindbergh and Charles Lindbergh, and we are more than pleased that Mrs. Lindbergh is in the audience today. Also in the audience, Reeve's daughter, Elizabeth Lindbergh Brown. And while introducing folk, let me also say that with us today are James Newton of Florida, chairman of the Lindbergh Fund, a resident of Florida, an octogenarian, a lifelong friend of Charles Lindbergh's, also a longstanding friend, former Governor Elmer Anderson, president of the Charles A. Lindbergh Fund, and I must say that Don Padella, among others, is here today of Padella and Spear, who's had such a large hand in, in making uh, this hour possible today. Ms. Brown graduated from Radcliffe College. She has been an elementary school teacher, a nursery school teacher, a church school teacher, I must add that. Her short stories have appeared in McCall's Red Book, Country Journal, and Vermont Life. And recently, she published a book entitled Moving to the Country, which I am halfway through and enjoying thoroughly, in which she conveys the sense of a small town in transition and deals with family life in a warm and telling manner. The title of Reeve Lindbergh Brown's address to us today is the Lindbergh Heritage, what do we do with it now? Reeve Lindbergh-Brown, we're in your good hands. <laughs> we have you. 
it's wonderful to be back in Minnesota. Whenever I come back here, I come with two feelings. The first is that I'm searching for something here, which I now know from experience I'm likely to find. The second feeling is that I'm coming home. The searching is something I'll tell you about as we go along because it's important to my theme today. The coming home is a more curious feeling because, of course, Minnesota is not my home. Never has been. I grew up in Connecticut, spent most of my adult life in Vermont. I'm a real Yankee, I guess, but if anybody said to me, Yankee, go home, I think I might end up in Minnesota. <laughs> and I never even visited Minnesota until the summer after my father's death. He died in August of 74. So that first trip here was almost 11 years ago now. I was driving across the country with my husband and two very small daughters. One of them, Elizabeth, is with me today. And at that time, Lindbergh Park was not on the schedule. It must have been 10 years ago. The trip must have been 10 years ago, yeah. I'd always told myself that I would come and visit Minnesota someday. My father had talked about his boyhood home quite often, but I was young and I was busy and I had two small children and I knew that when I got around to it, I would visit Minnesota someday. But up until that summer, someday was quite vague and distant in my mind. Then my father died and during that trip across the country, the summer after his death, it became very important to me to go to Little Falls, which was not on our route, not part of the original plan for our vacation, not at all, but I had to go. Was it Lindbergh Heritage I was looking for 10 years ago, or something else, someone else? Those of you who have suffered the loss of someone you love, as most of us have and will, you must have a pretty good idea of who I was looking for at Lindbergh Park that summer. And the wonderful thing, the really amazing and ironic thing, is that I found him. It was extraordinary. I found my father in Minnesota in a national park where thousands of people shared him with me. And that's why I say it was ironic. One of the difficult things about being a child of famous parents is the sharing. I think these children feel even more than other children the burden of sharing their parents with the world. The whole world, it sometimes seems. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, as a great compliment, and it is a great compliment, your father is a part of American history, or your father belongs to the American people. And I, nodding proudly and politely, have thought each time, with a measure of jealousy. Oh, no, he doesn't. He is part of our family, and he belongs to us. This sharing is a hard thing for a child. doesn't matter how old the child is. And for the children of famous parents, you have the pride and the burden of this sharing. My father belongs to the American people. 
I say that myself now. I say it because of what I learned that summer 10 years ago in Minnesota. I learned then what I had somehow forgotten about sharing the old truth that we teach our children every day, which is that sharing works both ways. I came to Minnesota thinking I'd lost my father, first to the great American public, then to death. And even his death was public. CBS News knew all about it before some of the family did. Yes, I came to Minnesota thinking I'd lost him, and Minnesota gave him back to me. There he was at Little Falls for all the world to see, and for me too. I kept finding him over and over, and in finding him, I established, for the first time, my personal connection with Lindbergh heritage. I found him at the park that was dedicated to his father, Charles A. Lindbergh Sr. I found him at the Interpretive Center, where the history of the family and the course of my father's life are both traced so beautifully. And I found him especially in his boyhood home at the farm he loved so much. I found him everywhere in the house, in the cellar with his old cars and the early milking machines he sold as a young man, in his mother's kitchen with the black iron frying pans he was crazy about. We always had some at our house in Connecticut. Big, heavy, black iron frying pans. They weighed a ton, and you had to wash and dry them in just the right way so they wouldn't rust. But he insisted that no food ever tasted as good as that which was prepared in those black iron pans. And it's true. I have some in Vermont now. You can ask my daughter, who does a lot of the washing and drying in our household. <laughs> I also found my father on his own bookshelves at the house in Little Falls. I remember how I smiled when I saw those books. Books about exploration and discovery and all the vastnesses of the world. Books about courage and survival and excitement. I don't remember their names now, but I, it doesn't matter. The names of this kind of book, these kinds of books, change with every generation. But the stories are the same. You've read these books. The ones that send you off to a desert island with a shipwreck or to the frozen north with a dog sled in a howling blizzard, or to the Amazon with a lot of steaming jungle noises and snakes. That wouldn't be my personal favorite, but it might be his. My father really liked snakes. Then there are the books that send you across the Pacific on a boat like the Contiki, or maybe, maybe across the Atlantic in a little silver-winged monoplane all alone with the sea and the sky, the spirit of St. Louis. My father didn't read that last book, of course. He wrote it, but I read it, some of you have read it, and it's a book that has sent a lot of people on adventures of their own, which is what all really good, good books do, one way or the other. So I found my father when I came looking for him here in Minnesota, and I found my Lindbergh heritage, my family history, and with it a sense of strength and endurance that has been a great resource to me at hard times. I also found my father's half-sister, Eva, dear Eva Lindbergh Christie Spaeth, who passed away not long ago and whom I miss very much. But I'm so glad I had a chance to get to know Eva with her wonderful spirit and her delightful laugh and that very special and very familiar twinkle in her eyes. She had such courage and humor and warmth and joy, such a feeling for the abundance of life. 
It's odd to know I won't see her this time. I've never come here and not seen Eva. But I'm lucky to have had the chance to know her. Another part of my Lindbergh heritage, another gift from the state, Minnesota gave me Eva. I think we come here, we Lindberghs, searching not only for personal history, but for some kind of philosophical wellspring, some sense of who we are and what we're all about. I know that my father referred back to his Minnesota boyhood throughout his writings and throughout his life. What he found here, what he had learned here, his Lindbergh heritage shaped his career from aviation pioneering and exploration to biomedical research to aerospace consultation to wildlife conservation and beyond. I think his experience here molded his whole philosophy which had to do with establishing a balance between technology and the natural environment. He spent his whole life with one foot in each of these two very different worlds, which is an unusual and precarious position to put your feet in. Most people find it hard to understand both the technological and the environmental points of view. They go for one or the other. My father loved both equally, thought they were crucial, to each other and to our very survival. He loved wildness, he loved technology, he believed in balance, and he learned about it right here. That was his Lindbergh heritage, whose influence you can see in many of his writings. In an article on conservation called The Wisdom of Wildness, published in Life magazine in 1967, he talks about his father's descriptions of early days in Minnesota and his reaction my father's reaction as a boy growing up in the burgeoning technological age he'd been born into. It's an interesting contrast. And this is what he said. My own interest in wildness roots back to early boyhood and stories my father told me about Minnesota's frontier when he was my age. Woods were full of deer, he said. The sky often black with duck. Every lake and river held its fish. Chippewa Indians built their teepees near his house. The frontier was a wonderful place for a boy to grow up. He wished I could have been there with him. I envied my father his frontier days. Charles A. Lindbergh, Jr., my father, admitted. I envied him. But my generation had compensations. Automobiles, airplanes, telephones, phonographs, thousands of scientific inventions, innovations. And still, one could reach the wilderness by traveling farther west. Paradoxically enough, it was the very compensations he wrote about that enabled my father, Charles Lindbergh, the aviator and technological man, to reach the kind of primitive, pre-technological wilderness his father had described to him in Minnesota. I learned to drive at the age of 18, my father wrote, to fly at 20. I made aviation my profession. Airplanes combined the elements I loved, bringing qualities of science and wilderness together without apparent conflict. Mathematics of engine and airfoil carried me over frontiers wilder and more inaccessible than my father had ever described. I came to know the Earth's geography as man had never known it before. I think for my father, aviation was the means by which an indissoluble bond was established in his own mind and being, between the technological world which so fascinated him 
and the natural environment which he'd grown to love as a child. Aviation gave him the vision, often literally, through which he came to believe in and to live the crucial balance between nature and technology. The balance became, began as a central theme of his Minnesota boyhood, and it became the overriding, culminating concern of his adult life. I say aviation gave him the vision because in the beginning, his immersion in the world of aviation was so intense that for years his main contact with the wilderness was visual. He was looking down on it from cruising altitudes. But all the same, he was watching very carefully as he looked down. During years spent flying civil air routes and on military missions, he writes, I watched changes of shade and texture on the great surface below my wings. Stump lands appeared where forests were, lakes climbed mountainsides, ditches gridded marshlands, dust hazed the prairies, highways and power lines kept scarring the ground from horizon to horizon. I watched crossroads become villages, villages become towns, towns turned into cities, suburbs spilled over hills. Aviation took him above all this, but it gave him a unique and valuable perspective. You will find it again, interestingly enough, in the words of many of our astronauts, Michael Collins, Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, to name only a few. For these people, as for my father, the technological progress, the great liftoff which takes them away from the Earth, brings them back to it also. And it brings them back with a renewed sense of the extraordinary preciousness and fragility of the planet, a new sense of responsibility, and an abiding love. Through aviation, my father grew to know better and better what he called the qualities of science and wildness. And yet, as his life continued, these qualities did come in conflict, after all, even as he watched. Over the years, he became alarmed at the deterioration of the environment, distressed by the vanishing of wildlife species all over the world. And in his 60s, he wrote with great concern, obviously, the scientific progress so alluring to me is destroying qualities of greater worth. He began to explore these qualities further, to grow into a greater and greater awareness of the earth over which he had once moved in search of new air routes, now moving over it again in search of new human values, new approaches to this very fragile, beautiful planet. He had come to know it well through the technology of aviation, but now he wondered if any technology could save it from the problems which technology itself had created. And I should point out here that my father, unlike some others who shared his concerns, never rejected technology. It was one of his first and his greatest loves. He contributed to and admired so much the accomplishments of the space age, but at the same time he enlarged and enriched his old respect for nature, for the primitive, for wildness. This double interest runs right through his scientific life, from the pioneer days of flight to the development of the whole aviation industry, from the first attempts at rocket research with Robert Goddard in the 1930s to the first manned space flight and beyond, from selling the milking machines to farmers here in Minnesota to working with Henry Ford on the first mass production of airplanes during World War II, 
to designing an artificial heart pump with Dr. Alexis Carell, to consulting with Bethesda Naval Hospital on the use of that same pump 30 years later, he always balanced his love for technology and his respect for the natural world. During the years when I knew him, he would fly off one week to Cape Kennedy to observe a moonshot, then fly again to a remote rainforest in the Philippines and visit the Tassaday, a tribe of people still living, to all intents and purposes, in the Stone Age. Aviation, commercial aviation now, helped him to embrace easily in this way two of his deepest interests, extremes of the primitive and extremes of technological advancement. He grew to believe that men and women struggling with the increasing complications of technological life could look to and learn from the primitive, from nature itself, which, as he wrote, thrives on infinite complication. No problem has been too difficult for nature to solve, to solve, he wrote toward the end of his life. From the dynamics of an atom, nature produces the tranquility of a flower, the joy of a porpoise, the intellect of man, the miracle of life. He became convinced that the human future depends on our ability to combine the knowledge of science with the wisdom of wildness. We use this phrase a lot in our work at the Charles A. Lindbergh Fund, which is based here in Minnesota, and through which we give annual grants and awards to people who are working toward my father's vision of balance. A number of fine researchers and pioneers in several areas of human endeavor will receive grants here this weekend. I think one of them might be here now. I think John Emmerich of the Colorado School of Mines is receiving a grant for his work in developing an environmental ethic for engineers. Are you here? Not here? Hi. <laughs> this is John Emmerich. This is what we're all about. <laughs> there are some other names that you don't know well as, as well as my father's name. Other researchers that we will be giving grants to. These are names you haven't heard yet. You will hear them again. I can think of a few right here. And there's an Ann Fallon, Stephen Winter, Douglas Macaill, Louis Ang, Mr. Fernandez, and Mr. Small, Rhonda Yankee, Scott Farrow. They are young people and older people working on projects ranging in geography from New York to New Mexico to the Antarctic to Guam. They are involved in environmental ethics, in uh, the genetic basis, let's see, for insecticide resistance, in uh, coronary research, in water and energy management, in uh, development of the solar sterling engine for use in third world countries. These people are working all the time for this vision of my father's. It's another name I haven't heard too much this week. Very important name for us. There's a man who is going to be receiving the Charles A. Lindbergh Award for a lifetime's work in balancing technology and nature. He, was, has, he is the president of the World Wildlife Fund. He is also the chairman of a group called Clean Sites Incorporated, which is trying to work with industry and the environment and government without having any of these people tear each other apart trying to clean up toxic waste in a way that still keeps people in business. He's a wonderful man. 
He's worked for a lifetime. The award could have been designed for him. Very quiet, very low-key, incredibly effective. Russell Train, and he is an incredible person. And if he were here now, he would be probably very annoyed with me for bringing his name up, but I want you to remember it. If I were still teaching school, I'd say, what's his name? <laughs> but Russell Train is a wonderful man doing wonderful work, and we will honor him this weekend, and I'm so glad. I've talked about my father's Minnesota boyhood and his Lindbergh heritage and what it led to. I've talked about the way aviation combined qualities of science and wildness for him all his life. And I've em emphasized aviation for a, a real purpose. One of the things we celebrate here this week is my father's 1927 flight from New York to Paris, the solo flight that made him so famous. It is very appropriate that we do this. The flight was a wonderful thing, tremendous contribution, an extraordinary feat for him that led to so many things, an extraordinary beginning for all of us. We'll never, never forget it. What we do forget, many of us, is that he didn't stop in Paris. He didn't stop there. He went on. I would like you to remember during Lindbergh Heritage Week that he went on because it was terribly important to him that he went on. It's terribly important to me. He once said to my mother a little wistfully, and I've said this before this week, it's important. He said that no matter where he went and no matter who he met, they always want to fly me to Paris. <laughs> he didn't mind, but he was a little wistful because he went on. Well, it's true, we love to fly him to Paris. We still do it every year about this time. We do it again whether it's in New York or St. Louis or San Diego or Houston or Washington or Minneapolis or even in Paris, we keep on flying him to Paris. And I don't object to that at all. I'll fly to Paris anytime, and I always love to fly with him. But what I would like to do with my Lindbergh heritage with what I, and what I feel I should do is to fly him a little further because he went so much further. The flight was a beginning, but he went on and on and on. And if we are going to remember him, if we are going to honor him, and if we are going to do something with what he was, with what his life meant, we have to honor it all the way. We have to keep him flying beyond Paris. We have to take a look at what he saw as he flew. We have to honor his vision, that enormous vision he acquired over the years through many flights when the whole world was the great surface below his wings, when the planet itself was the course he flew. And every time we come close to that balance, he saw as crucial. Every time we take a step toward that tricky, difficult, necessary equilibrium between technology and the natural environment, well, he keeps on flying, doesn't he? And as long as we remember where he really went, all the places he went, as long as we honor and support the people like John Emmerich and Russell Train who carry forward that vision, then he always will keep flying. I have one last thing to say to you, and it's going to be hard to say it, but it's in the nature of a word of gratitude, and I really want to do it. So I'll try. 
Lindbergh heritage is like any heritage, anything inherited, experienced, even suffered. It's hard to know what to do with the circumstances of our lives. They are so strange and unexpected sometimes, and it takes time to learn that we can do something with them, even that we must do something with them. I told you that when I lost my father and came to Minnesota, I found that he was given back to me in many ways, and I was grateful. I learned here what I could do with my heritage and my memories and my love and my loss, and you showed me how to do it here in Minnesota. I didn't tell you that I had a parallel experience just this last winter when I lost not my father but my son. He was almost two years old. His name was Jonathan Lindbergh Brown. He was handicapped, severely motorically handicapped, since a bout with encephalitis he had had as an infant. He was a beautiful child, very loving and very warm, though he couldn't talk or walk. I don't know how we knew he was loving, but we did. He had a funny chuckle, his grandfather's dimple, great enjoyment of life. He loved to ride horseback with me or on the tractor with his father. He'd ride in the back of my car listening to music. He loved Willie Nelson and the Brandenburg Concertos equally, which I think shows great taste. <laughs> and he had a pretty good life considering how tough it was. This winter, very suddenly, he died. Nobody quite understands why. He died in his sleep from some complication of the earlier brain trauma. It was a terrible time for everyone, for my husband, for my daughters, for my mother, all of us. But in the middle of one of the worst days, I got a call from a friend at the Lindbergh Fund, just when I was thinking, what do I do with this? Heritage? Experience? I don't know what you call it. What do you do with this? Incredible loss and love and pain? What do you do with it? My friend called to say that former Governor Elmer Anderson of Minnesota had suggested that we set up an endowment, a grant, through the Lindbergh Fund to be administered in Jonathan's name in some appropriate way, that we do something for Johnny to remember him. Maybe we could help other children like him, others who have suffered handicaps or hardships which diminish lives that should be full and rich as possible. Perhaps we can find a way, a balance, for those whose lives have been radically thrown off balance. Perhaps we can bring some of these people into the abundance of their lives and ours, which is where they should be. And there it was again. Minnesota had given me back my father 10 years ago when I thought I'd lost him. And I think I know what to do with that heritage now. And this winter, Minnesota, in a whole different way, has given me back my son. And I think, I feel sure, that with your help, we will keep them both flying. And I thank you. Thank you, Reed Lindbergh Brown. Thank you for sharing with us 
about your father and about Jonathan and teaching us something about what to do with circumstances beyond our control but which represent very real challenges. The time has come when we take a break for those of you who must leave. Also the time when uh, those of you who have questions that you'd like to pose to our guest uh, may send them to the aisles and they'll be picked up and we'll deal with them as best we can. Let me remind the radio audience that you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker this past half hour has been Reeve Lindbergh Brown, daughter of Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, and she has been talking about the Lindbergh heritage. What do we do with it now? Before we proceed any farther, uh, I wonder if uh, Mrs. Lindbergh would just do us the kindness of standing in her place and letting us welcome her. Thank you. Thank you. Reeve told me uh, just before the program began that I, I thought it was delightful that her mother made the effort to be here and she said well I told her she didn't need to come we I'd give her a copy of the speech or I'd the, there'd be a tape and she said no way I'm coming and we're glad <laughs> we're also happy very pleased that Reeve Lindbergh Brown's daughter Elizabeth is here. Elizabeth, would you stand? <laughs> While we're at this, Elmer Anderson, get to your feet, sir. <laughs> and James Newton, sir, or would you stand? <laughs> there are others, but perhaps we should stop and uh, uh, get on with some of the, of the questions. One question that, that uh, came from a member of my staff, a young clergyman on our staff, Phil Reed, posed this question, which I uh, think in light of your story about your son might have particular meaning. Perhaps you'd return to the podium and I'll put it to you. He writes, my son is two years old. What would you like him to grow up knowing about Charles Lindbergh? Well, I would love to have him know where my father started and how far he went. I'd like to have him realize what that flight to Paris meant, and I'd like to have him realize what came afterward. I'd like to have him share the vision. That would be wonderful. Thank you. You really uh, spoke to this, but perhaps you'd care to elaborate it, on it. The question, the comment, you grew up in a family whose great joys and deep sorrows have been very public. 
Has that had a great effect on you? Is it an advantage or disadvantage to be a part of a celebrity family? Little of each. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's an extraordinary experience and I think that, that it becomes more so as you get older because my parents were wonderful about giving us as normal a life as possible in spite of the very public nature of their lives. Um, we, we became increasingly aware of how very important these people were to the rest of the world. We knew how important they were to us. <laughs> but um, I, I am so impressed with the way that they, they let us grow up without too much celebrity pressure. They were really good about it. In fact, I was furious at my father when, when, we, when the Spirit of St. Louis film came out and I almost had a chance to meet Jimmy Stewart and my father said the party was too late. Wasn't going to let me stay up to meet Jimmy Stewart. Oh, I was mad. <laughs> but, but I think it was more than Jimmy Stewart. I think it was that whole world he wanted to shield us from. He, he didn't want us to get too drawn in to the whole celebrity business. He thought that would be difficult, as it was for him. So it is, there, are, there are problems and there are advantages. I am very proud of my family. I think they're terrific. I think what my father went through, the way he survived all the circumstances of his life, and the way he came out, is just amazing. Can't believe he could do that. I think that, the, 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 that strength is one of the most impressive things about him, that he came right through the fires all through his life, and he was able to come out of it with a very strong philosophy and a very strong sense of self, and without having been beaten down by some of the things that were hard for him, some of which were, there was the celebrity, there was the kidnapping, there was a World War II experience. He had a lot of hard times. And he came out so strong, which is terrific. I think you've already begun to address the next question. But what has been your heritage from, from your mother and her vision? Uh, perhaps of a piece, but still perhaps separate too. Everything. Everything. <laughs> Everything I have, I owe this lady right here. <laughs> Heroes seem today very different from the kind of hero that Charles Lindbergh was. Do you agree, or would you care to comment in any way about? Well, somebody compared Neil Armstrong to my father, and Neil Armstrong himself said he refused the comparison. He said, oh, no. He said, we had a cast of thousands. He did it alone. Hmm. Uh, I think the concept of the hero is, is quite different today. But I have a different idea of heroism. I think there are thousands of unsung heroes. And I, I certainly have, have seen this in, in uh, many people who live out their lives in, in tremendous service to others and, and are unrecognized. I can think of so many people I know who, who take care of others and are Nobody knows about the day-by-day the, the -day heroism of the work they do. I know uh, uh, through my work with handicapped kids, I, I watch, I've watched parents 
taking children who were very difficult to take care of to the zoo and to the circus and out into the world and when they're worried about maybe how people are going to be looking at these children and boy out they go and that's heroism that's one of the most heroic things I've ever seen watching people do what they have to do with their troubles is terribly moving to me so for me I see heroism everywhere in human life now I think that the public concept of the hero has certainly changed it's different but it's the same spirit that you, you'll see in people's daily lives in the ways that they the ways that they are as my mother once said to me at a hard time the way that they are equal to their lives I once said to her I don't know how you can stand what you're going through now and she said it's all right she said I'm equal to my life what a wonderful thing to be she certainly is equal to her life and a lot of us are and don't, and don't realize it it's hard sometimes to be equal to your life thank you this blends in from the audience with a father of heroic stature have you struggled personally with the attitude that women are equal to men in capability as well as accomplishment absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Is that all I'm going to say? <laughs> well, I don't like to, I don't like to put down men, but I think women are at least equal. Uh, <laughs> okay. Would your father have wanted to be an astronaut to continue to explore new frontiers in aviation and space. Well, he might have liked to go up there. What do you think, Mother? <laughs> I think he would have liked it up there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was very interested in the space program, and he, he, was, uh, he had a, a friendship with Michael Collins, isn't that right? A after the, the moonshot, he, they, he wrote a foreword for his book, and he was fascinated by the perspective of the astronaut and the, the kinds of things that they were interested in, also fascinated by the technology. Yeah. Right. I was fascinated in just rereading this morning the uh, early chapter of uh, your father's autobiography, uh, Charles A. Lindbergh's autobiography of values, and to, to rediscover how early he was interested in jet propulsion and, yeah. and the limitation of the propeller to, to drive craft at higher speeds and, and all of that. I don't think some of us fully appreciate his in-depth uh, awareness and uh, early, uh, early uh, insight into all of that. He was interested very, er very early on, shortly after the flight, I think in the early 30s, he was interested in, in rocketry and he got in touch with Robert Goddard, who was the, the father of, of uh, really of, of rocket research in New Mexico. Elmer, you're going to have to correct me if I say anything wrong here. <laughs> but um, people thought Goddard was crazy this rocket business. They thought he was, he was uh, this was science fiction. This was never going to happen. And my father got in touch with Harry Frank Guggenheim, his friend, who agreed to support Goddard in his aerospace work way back when it looked like, you know, crazy stuff to most people. So he was very much involved, very much on the ground floor of the, uh, of, of the rocket program, of the aerospace industry, well, industry, the, the whole aerospace research area. Yeah. While we're on that track, might you comment on his interest in the heart pump or the, uh, the instrument for helping uh, 
during heart surgery and that kind of agenda? That happened because of uh, the, the illness of my mother's sister, Elizabeth, who died quite young, uh, and my father talked to her doctors who said that the real problem was that the heart couldn't be, couldn't keep functioning during her illness. It was the weakness of the heart, and he wanted to know why you couldn't keep the heart, why there couldn't be some kind of mechanical apparatus that would keep the heart going during an operation or just keep things going medically. Why wasn't that possible? And they said, well, it's not possible. But they suggested that he, that he uh, contact Dr. Alexis Carell, the Nobel Prize winning heart surgeon and heart researcher. And my father did, became very close to Dr. Carell, and together they designed a perfusion pump for work in coronary research, and in, he, that was uh, very much the, the beginning of a lot of the, of the uh, artificial heart work that's, that's going on today. It was, he was extraordinarily interested in that, and in fact one of our awardees is, is still working on some of these same principles, Dr. Bing, in coronary research. So he, he had the sense that, that you could, that things could be done. I think he was, he was, he had the mind of a, of a the mind of an engineer. He thought you could, you could fix it if you just figured out how. And he did it over and over again. He didn't believe that you had to, you had to stop. You didn't have to stop in Paris. You didn't have to stop with science fiction, with, with rocket research. You didn't have to stop with the idea that, that um, you, couldn't, you couldn't help a weak heart. He thought you, you could go on. He thought you could explore and find out how much you could do. And he kept on doing it. There's an article by James Reston in the morning paper, which uh, I couldn't resist bringing to this forum today. The title of it is The Class of 85 Faces the Future, and in the, the middle of it he says, regarding that class, their problems are likely to be different and maybe more difficult. Not how to deal with war, seems to think that, that might, not ha might not happen, that threatens the nation, not even how to deal with adversity, but how to deal with prosperity and the four freedoms of the modern age. The freedom of sex, the freedom of booze and other drugs, the freedom of divorce, and the freedom to run away from the consequences of their disbelief in anybody or anything. I just wondered if you'd have a reaction to that. I think you might have a better answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> You're all invited back on Sunday. <laughs> uh, this ties in, in a nation where the family and community is changing quickly, often deteriorating, what role and balance can family history play in shaping American life? Omnibus question, but... I know well, I think you have to that. look to your strengths, mm -hmm. and your, I, I think sometimes it's very helpful to go to look at your family history, to the strengths in your family and the strengths in your background, and 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 find out what what has happened to people and what they have survived. And you think, once you've done that, you think, well, gee, maybe I can do that too. It's hard when you think of yourself as a single individual, going through some of the things one goes through, but if you take a look around you your family and your friends, and you realize that uh, we're all in this together. 
and, and we do survive. I, I think looking back at the family is like looking around at your friends. We do, we do make it one way or the other, and we can use our, each other's help. It makes it a lot easier. Well, you deal with the family very realistically in your, your book, Moving to the Country. I commend you for that. Uh, I'm sure the uh, representative of the Lindbergh uh, Foundation or Fund will be pleased with this question. How is it funded? Ah. <laughs> we will be passing a hat. <laughs> Anybody have a hat? Uh, it's founded through, through, funded through contributions. It's funded through, we have fundraising events. It's, it's funded any way we can uh, figure out to get it funded. <laughs> um, we, we do, we have had a lot of very generous supporters. We, we're, we're working on it. We're doing okay. What can you tell us of your father's primary interests or passions concerning the natural world, ecology, world wildlife fund, etc.? Well, I, I think I've talked about some of that. Yes, um, you did. He, he did work with the World Wildlife Fund. He worked with a number of different organizations. Um, wherever there was a need, he would go, he went, he would, if there was a need in Alaska, he would fly up to Alaska and talk to people. If there was a need in the Philippines, he would, he would fly there. He was really on tap a lot during the la la last 10, 15 years of his life for conservation work all over the world. Um, he felt it was very, he would do things for, for conservation causes and for and, environment, technology, balance kinds of things that, that he never did before. He had press conferences. My father hated press conferences, hated them. And there he was, talking to the press because he was so concerned about the cause he that he was pursuing. He would, uh, let's see, what else did he, he would sign autographs. Autographs, but he didn't like doing that either. He, liked, he didn't like the sort of the, the tremendous celebrity attention he'd been getting since 27. He really had avoided that for years, but he, when he had something that he really wanted to do, passionately wanted to do, which was to, to further this vision, this you know, environment technology vision, then he was able to do a lot of things that had been very painful and difficult for him to do in earlier years. It was an extraordinary turnaround for him, you know, using the very thing that was most difficult for him in the service of what he wished to see accomplished. I wonder if you'd do us the kindness of sort of straightening the record right, relative to your father's visit to uh, Nazi Germany, or those series of visits, and what occasioned them, and then his subsequent involvement in World War II. I think that would be helpful. You want me to straighten the record? Yeah. Well, there is some confusion uh, as reflected even in some editorials yes. recently, so I, yes. I think it's yes. very... Uh, uh, up front to uh, ask you to speak to All right, to fine. That, that was a very difficult and emotional time, I think, for the whole world. For my father, it was a complicated time, too. He was asked to go to Nazi Germany, partly to try to help make an arrangement for Jewish people to leave that country with their possessions. That was not well known. When he was there, he received a German medal. Didn't know he was going to receive it. Could not refuse it without jeopardizing everything he was trying to do. There was a tremendous furor, which was certainly enlarged when he began to speak against the US entry into the war. He didn't think we could win that war. 
He spoke out against the groups that he felt were trying to bring us into that war. He said, I don't blame them. I do the same thing myself, but I'm against it. And he was for years after that vilified by many people as anti-Semitic. I don't think he was anti-Semitic. I think he was not careful enough in the things that he said at that time. Not a politician, not a diplomat. I think he should have known what he said would have the kind of effect that he did. And I cannot stand here and battle quote for quote. You know, my father is absolutely clear, never said anything that could, that could be uh, construed as anti-Semitic. I can't do that because I feel that the people who criticized him, many of them, had so much, such a background of suffering from which to criticize. I'm not going to stand here and defend my father's reputation and his words against the background of the Holocaust. Because I think the important thing is that that should be remembered and never repeated and never forgotten. I think that's more important than my father's reputation. My father's reputation is fine with me. I know who he was. I know the great sweep of his life. But I'm not going to sit here and trade quotes because I think that is too small for the issues at hand here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. In rereading his story, I was aware of the uh, extent of his involvement in World War II once that happened. He, what, flew 50 missions in the Pacific? Yes, he did. Many yeah. combat missions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. Did your father ever talk about his barnstorming days in Minnesota and like places? He did a little bit. He, did, he, he talked about his friends. He loved the friends that, that, he, uh, that he flew with, Phil Love and Bud Gurney and... Uh, a bunch of them. You know more names than I do, Mother. But he, 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 he talked about that life. He, he, he talked about it the way you do talk about some of the crazy things you did. I, remember, I think of my own friends on, on motorcycles in the 60s and my father in those planes, you know, doing those amazing, amazing things. I just I can't believe the things that he did. But uh, he had a really good time. Loved it. In fact, I, do I have time for one quick story? You go right ahead. Um, you probably all know the actor Cliff Robertson. He is a pilot and uh, is a friend also of my father's old friend, Bud Gurney, in California, who passed away recently. Um, and Cliff Robertson saw my father in an airport, never had met him before, but he saw my father in an airport and he was pretty sure it was my father. And he went up to him. He told me the story a couple of years ago. Went up to my father and he said, excuse me, are you Charles Lindbergh? And my father said, no, no, mm-mm. <laughs> and he said, oh, are you sure you're not Charles Lindbergh? <laughs> oh, my father said, no, absolutely no, not Charles Lindbergh. 
And then uh, Cliff said, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry to disturb you. It's just that I'm a really good friend of, of Bud Gurney, who was an old friend of Charles Lindbergh, and I, I wanted to say hello. And my father looked up and said, you're a friend of Bud Gurney's? <laughs> and Cliff Robertson said, oh, yes, I am. My father said, well, then I am Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I make a confession that I have never been to Little Falls, Minnesota, but I have seen your father's grave in Maui. Oh, that's quite a trip. <laughs> and I think it's exquisite in its location and the gravestone bearing that reference so poignant, all things considered, from Psalm 139 though I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. And there you are looking over the, the Pacific. It's just, it's just perfect. Do we have any more questions? We're nearing the end. Do you hold a pilot's license? Do you enjoy flying? Did you fly with your father? <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did fly with my father. I flew with him once when I was about my daughter Elizabeth's age, a little younger, and we crash-landed in a field full of cows. And I remember it was fly we were flying over Connecticut, and um, I wasn't one bit scared. I was really excited. I was never scared when I flew with him. And I remember I said to him, Father, are we going to crash? And he was, you know, he had an automatic choke that wasn't automaticing, you know, it wasn't doing what it was supposed to, and he was pretty nervous. And he said, it's all right, it's okay, we're going to be all right, and down he went, and they had to take the plane apart to get it out of there, the whole thing, they had to take it all apart. I don't know what happened to the cows, <laughs> but I loved flying with my father. It was a wonderful experience. He was, a, he was an artist. It was an extraordinary thing to be flying with him. My mother used to, when we flew in Vermont, we, which we, father and, and my husband, who was an era, was is an aerial photographer, or is a photographer, and did aerial photography with my, with my father. Um, they used to fly a lot, and my mother and I would watch them coming in over the little airfield, and she always knew which plane he was flying. This was a rented plane, always, and always a different plane, but she would, she would know, just by the way he dipped that wing, that he was coming in. He just had a special style and a special kind of grace. There are, you see it in athletes, you can see it in dancers, and he had that with a plane. It was extraordinary to watch him fly. Hmm. Well, before we reach closure here, let me simply remind our radio audience that uh, you're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, and that you have been listening to Reeve Lindbergh Brown talking about the Lindbergh heritage, what do we do with it now? You said that you'd found your father in Minnesota, that you'd found in a special way your young son through Minnesota, and we have found and experienced something very special by your presence and your words, and we thank you. Thank you.